that I'm going to pose today is why does God permit evil and suffering? That's not just something that we get challenged by on the outside when people say, well, there's no God because if there was, certainly there wouldn't be any evil or suffering. Um, but I think even as Christians, sometimes we struggle with that. You know, we've, um, we hear of somebody like Aaron, you know, Amy's friend, um, who just constant battle with chronic Lyme that just makes life tough. You know, we think about... Um, the Johnsons and Cassie and her cancer that she struggles with. And, um, you know, my wife Amy's got, got MS that, you know, we don't know what that'll hold for the future. And we think about, you know, Walker recently here and um, that coming clear out of the blue. And so the question is, why does God permit evil and suffering in our world? And so we're going we're gonna to try to tackle that this morning. So first off, let's kind of look at the challenge for that. If we think about what the world, if we think about it from the standpoint of defending our faith, what does the world actually... Um, say or think about this. Well, one of the things we hear from the world sometimes is that God just plain doesn't exist because evil and suffering exists. So you have some in society that will say, well, the proof that God doesn't exist is this the evil and the wickedness that you see in the world. Another thing we hear from the world is that, well, God might exist, but he's certainly not all-powerful because if he were all-powerful, he could stop evil and suffering. And so... This is one of the um, arguments that Hawking would use at times to prove that God doesn't exist, that, well, first off, God can't exist because evil and suffering exist, but even if he did, he certainly isn't the all-powerful God that Christians claim he is because he's incapable of stopping evil or suffering. Or they take it to the next level, which is, well, God might exist, he might be all-powerful, but he certainly isn't all-loving and he's not a good God because he could stop evil and suffering, but he doesn't. He chooses not to stop it for some reason, which, if that's the case, then God is neither good nor loving. That's what they claim. But then there's even another level that the world sometimes takes it to. And that's that God is evil because he not just permits evil to exist and suffering to exist, but he actually commits evil. He causes people to suffer. He's sort of this cosmic killjoy, if you will, that sits up in the heavens and punishes the wicked, commands the killing of women and children in the Old Testament simply because he doesn't like what they do. He encouraged slavery, is what they'll say. So somehow God is evil because he causes suffering and he's the ultimate cause of wickedness and evil in the world. That's kind of the challenge that we face from the world around us. Now, I'd say probably more often than not the question that we might be posed with are people that simply really wonder whether or not God exists because they're suffering. That's probably more than likely the the objection we're going to face. I don't generally get challenged by people saying, God is evil because he causes wickedness and suffering. The two most common things I hear is, where is God? If he really loves us, why does he allow this? Why couldn't he do something about it? Why couldn't he just stop evil and suffering? And then the second one, the second most common one, is probably the idea that, well, something's not right with God, because if you look at the Old Testament, he was a pretty nasty dude. You know, and there's something not right there. And so those are probably the two most common objections, I think, that that we might face. When it comes to millennials, um, I think they're probably going to struggle most at the idea that God should be able to stop it. He really should. So what's, what's the truth? Where, where do we find um, our truth in all of this? Well, 
as I mentioned here, it's pretty clear that evil and suffering do exist in the world. John MacArthur actually um, did some good stuff on suffering. And he kind of breaks down suffering into three kinds of suffering that we face in this world. The first one is what we call natural evil. Okay, That's things like uh, just death, um, natural disaster, destruction, earthquakes, um, injuries, you know, falling off your bike or your skateboard or your, you know, anything you're playing with, disease. Those are what we would put into the category of natural evil or natural suffering. There's a second type of evil that John MacArthur identifies, which is moral evil. That would be things like sin, abuse, violence, murder, immorality, rape, etc. So you can see what sort of distinguishes those two. Natural would be just those things that sort of happen. You know, there's nothing immoral about I'm looking out here at the water and I'm seeing how it's quite high today because of some of the rain, you know, which means some flooding in some areas. That's just, there's nothing immoral about that. Um, but when it comes to something, you know, I was listening to um, the, uh, the news this morning about, an, you, know, you know who MS-13 is, the gangs? They're becoming, um, there's a, because of the whole sanctuary city thing that's going on in the nation right now, a lot of these immigrants are, are part of gangs and whatnot, and there's some stuff going on up on the East Coast with MS-13 where there's just some massive brutality. And law enforcement's having a hard time dealing with it because when they arrest these guys and they want to deport them, they can't deport them because they can't work with ICE, the federal agency, because they live in a sanctuary city. Well, that's, that's moral evil. You know, killing somebody and the abuse and, and other things that takes place at the hands of these gangs, that would be the category of moral evil. But then there's actually a third category that MacArthur identifies, which is supernatural evil. Demonic, Satan, outright demons. And so I think MacArthur, when you look at the, the scriptures, he's probably right. That these are probably a good way to summarize the three types of suffering and evil that we face in our world. Natural things, um, supernatural things, and then just moral things. And so we could probably put suffering and evil into one of those three categories. Now, when you think about that as being the source of all evil, there's different ways that we suffer. We suffer physically. We suffer emotionally, we suffer psychologically, and then we suffer spiritually. And I think that might sort of summarize how we suffer physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual. And sometimes we find that those are all combined, don't we? When somebody is suffering physically from something, um, I think about, you know, Katie. You guys saw Katie walk in today with a cast on her arm, broke her wrist um, on Monday. Well, there was not only some physical suffering with that, but there was some emotional suffering as she wept and cried because of it. Uh, I think that's now turned, I think she likes having the cast, and I think it's turned to joy now because she's got a club. <laughs> so there's a certain amount of, you know, mix of these things that, that take place. Sometimes our suffering is compounded because it might be physical, but then there might be a emotional part to it. Sometimes there's a spiritual part. I think about um, Walker and his family. You know, suffering now physically because of the cancer, but there's been some emotional suffering a part of that. There's also some psychological suffering, some things in our head that makes us worry and, and fear and stuff, and that's more psychological. But then there's a spiritual side of it. Is maybe, maybe they wonder, wow, why, why did God allow this to happen? What's, what's going on there? And you've seen, I've been forwarding on Jennifer's emails to the church and some of the neat ways that they've seen God work through that. And that demonstrates the spiritual side of what happens with suffering, whether it's you know, positive spiritual responses or negative. 
So we have different types of evil, we have different types of suffering, so the first truth here, if you will, is that it exists. We can't deny that. So when somebody um, questions us or says, you know, boy, if there's a God, why does he allow suffering? Why does suffering exist? Why does evil exist? Why does he allow things like World War II with the Nazis slaughtering the Jewish people? Or why does he allow, you know, rape and other things to, to happen? Our answer can't be to ignore that. We have to look up to him and say, you're right, it exists, it's there. We all suffer from it. So the real question is why? Why do evil and suffering exist? Well, the first answer to that is that it's a result of sin. There's no question about that. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, if you will. Genesis chapter 3. God did not actually create suffering. Though one of the charges I mentioned in the introduction here is that some want to blame God for it. God did not create Evil and suffering. We'll start with Genesis 1, actually. Just in verse 31, you'll see that when God created everything, when He finished everything, day day 6, or actually day 7, after He got to the end of it and rested, He said this, God saw that all He had made, and behold, it was not just good, but very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. What we know is that God created everything good. God is not a God of author, or sin, or suffering, everything he created was good. But then, we all know the story, something happened. And that we find in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to rattle off a number of the things that came about because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. You remember the story? Eve and Adam are hanging out in the garden. Satan appears to Eve, sort of tempts her and says, well, look at the tree, you know. Did God really say you can't eat of that? And we know the story, she went ahead and succumbed to his temptation, ate, gave it to her husband, and they both fell into sin. And as a result of that, a number of things came about. One of the things, if you look at Genesis chapter 3 with me, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. And look at what happens in verse 7. The first thing we see is shame. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now what's striking about that is they were naked beforehand but didn't seem to care. All of a sudden now, after sin, they care about it to the point where their husband and wife, they're covering up their bodies because of shame. And so shame was introduced into the world because of suffering. Look at verses 8 and 10. Then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So what we end up here with is fear. So fear was introduced as a result of sin as well. That's an emotion. That's a form of suffering. Verse 11. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave for me to the tree and I ate. So now we have blame as a result of sin. It wasn't something God created. Look at verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So now we have deception introduced because of sin. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So now we have the curse as a result of the fall. 
Look at verse 15. And I will put enmity, that's strife, difficulty, conflict, between you and the woman, because of your, or between your seed and her seed, you shall bru- or he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So now we have strife, enmity, conflict between people that came about as a result of the fall. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain. That's actually the word for toil or difficulty. It's not the word for physical pain. It's the word for difficulty, toil. What God basically is saying is as a result of your sin, your your difficulty now in childbirth is going to increase. And the word for childbirth there is not just birthing the child, but it has to do with all of child rearing. basically means from the moment that the woman is pregnant to the moment that kid steps out the door and heads away, <laughs> there's going to be difficulty. That's a result of the fall. And so we have this toil. It's the same word used of Adam later on when it says that in toil he'll work the ground. So toil now, this difficulty, physical difficulty, sweat, tears, are all part of the fall. Verse 16, Eve is told that her husband will rule over her. It says that she will desire her husband. That's actually a negative thing in this context. It's the idea of pushing back. Um, it's used elsewhere in the scriptures to indicate that. So we have marital strife. That was now brought about as a result of the fall. Verse 17 says that the creation was cursed. Verse 18 says that thorns and thistles will be brought up in the ground. Verse 19 says that Adam will work the ground with sweat. And then in verse 19 we're told that death was introduced as a result. So we have the decay of the body. The fact that you're born and for maybe the first um, 12 to 18 years of your life, things get better in some respects. Physically you become stronger and taller, but all of a sudden it takes a nosedive and from that point on, guess what? Body starts to decay, you start to you know not feel so good anymore, you know. You wonder if you can make it up the stairs without breathing heavy. Because ultimately you're heading towards death and decay. Verses 22 and 23 go on to say that ultimately we have separation from God that was introduced because of sin and the fall. And so what we ultimately have here is who's responsible for the sin and the suffering that's in the world? Is it God or is it somebody else? I can think of two parties that are responsible for this. One is us, mankind, Adam and Eve. But who ultimately started the whole thing? God really said. So when people want to blame God for the sin and the suffering, they're missing the picture here because it wasn't God that created it. Granted, He permitted it. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But who's to blame for sin and suffering in the world? It rightly belongs in our lap and in the lap of Satan and his minions. They're the cause. We're the cause. So the question really should be, Pointed at us, not at God. Now, the question would be, why does God allow this to continue? In other words, um, we'll start with it, with our own experience. We experience sin and suffering for a lot of different reasons. Okay. Sometimes we suffer the natural consequence of living in a fallen world. Kimberly and I have talked about this because of the tendonitis in her arms and, and stuff. One of the reasons we suffer is simply because there are natural consequences in living in a fallen world. I want you to look at Romans chapter 8 with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 through 22. It says, The creation was subject to futility. 
not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. Basically, what we know about creation is that creation is in a state, if you will, that it doesn't want to be in. Can I say it that way? Obviously, creation is not you know, living, breathing in the sense that it's got a mind or something, but God created creation to be in a certain state, meaning all the trees would produce fruit as they're supposed to. Everything would look good. Everything would function the way it's supposed to. But ever since the fall, this world now suffers. And it's groaning, the scriptures tell us. It's looking forward to the day when it's released from its corruption. It's looking forward to the day when God reveals His sons and glories, it says, and everything is recreated. Remember, one of the last things you see in the book of Revelation is that God recreates the heavens and the earth. Returns the earth back to its intended state. But until then, what we have is a creation that is suffering. Things are not working the way that they're supposed to work. And because we're part of that creation, that means that we do not work the way that we are supposed to work. Our bodies do not function the way that our bodies were intended to function. So we have things like physical ailments. You know, you guys have known my struggles with, with what we call SIBO, this gas, you know, this gastrointestinal stuff that I have, trying to keep my weight up and eat, and how certain foods that are supposed to be good for me don't really treat me very well. It's something that kind of stinks. I hate it. You know, I wish I could just eat without some of the, you know, Thanksgiving after eating, I kind of go home and it's like not feeling too good because it just doesn't agree with me. Well, that's part of living just in a natural world that's fallen apart. Um, you think about the extreme heat in the summer, the extreme cold in the wintertime. That's not fun, right? In fact, think about the number of older folks that when it gets really, really cold here in Ohio and the concern that people have for their health and their safety. You know, What about hurricanes? We look at what's happened down in Florida and Texas and the people that have suffered. Look at Puerto Rico, which is devastated. Sometimes we just suffer not because of anything else other than it's just part of living in the world part of living in a corrupt universe, a corrupt world, and as a result, we pay the consequence for that. It has nothing to do with our actions or anything else. It's just life in a fallen world. So that's one reason why we suffer. Another reason we suffer is because sometimes there are consequences for our own sin. So sometimes we suffer because it is our fault. Not just that we live in a fallen world. Proverbs 4.19 says this, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Another way to say that is the way of the wicked is difficult. Sometimes we suffer the natural consequence of our own sin. It's our own fault. Proverbs 10.16 says that the wages of righteousness is life, but the income of the wicked is punishment. Another chapter in Proverbs. In fact, why don't you turn there with me. We'll read this one. Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10, I'm going to read starting in verse 24. What the wicked fears will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. When the whirlwind passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one who... Um, those who send him. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. The hope of the righteous is gladness, but the exception of the wicked, or expectation of the wicked, 
perishes. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue will be cut out. The lips of the righteous bring forth what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked will be perverted. What do we have there? Basically, God describing that the way of the wicked is difficult. There's consequences for wicked, wicked behavior. I've already mentioned some of the gang activity on the East Coast. You know, some of these guys, their lives end rather quickly because of their decision to involve themselves in gang activity. Sometimes um, our own suffering is simply because of our own sin. Think about within our own family. Um, some of you kids, when you do something wrong, what happens? You know, do you ever get disciplined? Or does mom and dad just let you get away with it? So you may get, we'll call it punishment, but we'll call it discipline, probably is a better term. But you're disciplined, you know. Um, maybe you lose access to one of your gadgets, your games or your toys, because maybe you haven't been doing your chores. Well, you're suffering, I understand, but it's because of your own actions, right? You, mom and dad aren't to blame for that. What about um, when people are arrested for crimes? You know, um, what about health issues for not eating properly? I mean, we know that if we don't eat properly, what happens? Sometimes we pay the penalty, right? Um, what about physical injuries for doing stupid things? Anybody ever been hurt because you did something that was just not very smart? Yeah. Huh? And want to share stories? You know, I mean, there are times, right, where I've had some, you know, I've had some myself. I used to, um, I told you, I think I've told you before, I used to clean the pool that we used to practice in growing up the high school pool. And so I would get up and deliver newspapers about 4.30 in the morning, and then I would uh, eat breakfast and go to the pool and clean the pool all before a 6 a.m. practice. Well, my buddy and I would sometimes get there early. Before he was, his sophomore year, he started to drive, so then we had a car to go back and forth. But prior to that, we had to ride our bikes. And so when nobody was in the pool yet, and it was early in the morning, we'd take our bikes out and ride them around the deck because we thought it was pretty cool that if the deck would get just a little bit wet, you could ride around the deck and wipe out. And so we would go zipping around and we'd hit that wet spot and the bike would just tumble and we'd go flipping around. And there were times where it wasn't too smart and we would learn maybe to not, well, not always because we were too stupid to not do it again, right? Sometimes those injuries were just because we did stupid things. I took my bike off the diving board one time. The result was not good, yeah. Doesn't, the result was not good. Because for about a week I had bruises in places that I should not have had bruises. Okay? Sometimes our own suffering is because of our own sin, our own actions. And in that respect, it might, you might say it's something we deserve. Now, I know that sounds harsh. Okay? We live in a, a time where, you know, food guidelines and stuff, you know, and if we just choose to completely ignore good, healthy eating, in some respects, you could say, yeah, I kind of deserve what I got. Now, sometimes you can't. Because, again, just the suffering. I think about going to point Jen out this morning, you know, with her diabetes. Not something she did to herself. That's part of living in a fallen, sinful world, and that's sometimes just the consequence. But in that, Jen, now you have to pay attention to what you eat, too, right? And if you don't, sometimes you pay the consequence of not making the right decisions. And so you get it, both sides of that coming, right? Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sins or actions against us. Sometimes it's not just us. Sometimes there's violence or abuse or persecution directed specifically to us and we have nothing to do with it. I have an uncle one time who was walking in Minneapolis and got mugged. Nothing he did, just got mugged. Sometimes there's indirect violence or suffering against us. 
Things like car accidents caused by another person. What about children that suffer because of abusive parents or things that happen on the playground at school? So sometimes we suffer not because of the natural consequences of the world. Sometimes we suffer not because it's our own cause, but sometimes it's because of the actions of other people and what they do that causes us to suffer. Sometimes we suffer because of Satan's attacks. This is probably a fourth way that we suffer. Think about Job's suffering. Remember what happened with Job, the story of Job? I'm going to read to you. Let's see if I can... Might be a little bit long here. You know what? I'm gonna, let me just summarize instead because it's probably too many verses to take time here. You remember the story of Job? Um, basically, Job's just hanging out, enjoying life, right? And it says that he was a man who feared God. But all of a sudden, Satan shows up on God's doorstep and says, "You know what? These people only worship you because life is good and you just good to them." And he says, "Have you considered Job?" And God allows Job to be tormented and um, manipulated at the hands of Satan. And so we have this example where Satan himself is directly responsible for Job's suffering. What about the demon possession we saw in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, where clearly these people are possessed by demons and they suffer because of direct demonic activity and attack. Look at what 1 Peter says. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. We are not exempt from this. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter's warning to us Christians. He says this in verse 8 of chapter 5. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour. But resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, talking about demonic suffering there probably, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Peter warns his readers that sometimes the suffering that you experience is a direct result of Satan trying to devour you like a roaring lion. His purpose is to destroy you. Paul even said that he had a thorn in the flesh that was delivered to him by Satan. That something Paul struggled with, we don't know what it was, but Paul struggled on a daily basis with some type of ailment that was a direct result of Satan's activity working his life. So we have Satan's attacks that sometimes cause us to suffer. What about God's chastisement? Now this is one where God is responsible for the difficulty in some respects. It's ultimately a result of our own sin, but God is the active agent in it. So sometimes we suffer because of God's chastisement. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 to 11 tell us that God chastises those that he loves. Remember the story I told last week where my dad um, had to make a difficult decision with me as a, as a young man, where he physically had to inflict a certain amount of discomfort on my backside to get me to pay attention. That was chastisement. It's not something he relished, but he had to inflict a certain amount of discomfort, if you will, to get my attention. 
to chastise me. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, meaning what God had given to him, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself. In other words, God had given Paul these revelations and he knew he was writing scripture. He knew he was speaking on behalf of God. Boy, that could make you pretty proud in a hurry, couldn't it? So, Paul said, so because of that, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. So sometimes we suffer because of God's chastisement or a way of God working in our lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that some of the Corinthians says were weak and sick. Some of them had died because they were abusing the Lord's Supper. That was God's chastisement. He took their lives. James chapter 5, verses 14 and 16 also mention the fact that sometimes we suffer because of our own sin. And so what we have here is that we have a variety of forms of suffering. Some of them are caused by simply being in the fallen world. Some of them are simply because of our own sin and things that we do. Sometimes we suffer because of somebody else's actions. It's unfair, but what they do impacts us. Sometimes we suffer because Satan attacks us. And sometimes we suffer because God is chastising us. Now, we may not always know, and sometimes it might be a combination of those things. You know, Kimberly has asked on a, on a number of occasions, um, you know, how do we know what God's doing? You know, trying to find an answer to exactly what... And I, and I tell her, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know if God's teaching you something with this or if this is just a natural consequence. I can't answer that. Sometimes we don't really know. But these are generally the ways that we suffer and reasons for why we suffer. Now, why, wouldn't, why would God actually allow that, is the question. Why would God allow us to suffer these things? Especially things like the, you know, Satan attacking us. Or maybe when it's not a result of our own sin. You could maybe make an argument that, hey, when it's our own fault, hey, God's going to be right. But maybe we're suffering because of somebody else's actions. Or maybe in the case of Walker, we're suffering with a disease or something that has nothing to do with our own sin. Why would God do that? Well, I'll be real frank. I don't think the Bible answers that directly. Now, that may not be what you want to hear this morning. But notice I said he doesn't answer it directly. Meaning, God doesn't come right out and say, well, this is why I let you suffer. You know, or this is why you're feeling the way you're feeling. However, the scriptures are filled with passages and statements that give us a pretty good indication as to why God might allow it. He might allow it because he created us with something called volition and the power of contrary choice. I know that's a big phrase, but I'll explain it. When God created us, He created us with volition and the power of contrary choice. And what that means is this. We often hear the phrase, mankind has free will. But to be real frank, mankind does not have free will. There's only two, if you will, time, or two types of people, if you will, that genuinely have free will. Adam and Eve had free will. And Christians have free will. I'll explain that in a little bit here. But volition, volition refers to the ability to make choices. Everybody has the ability to make choices. Adam and Eve had a choice to make. We have choices to make. But even the unsaved world can make choices. So every human being is created with something called volition, the ability, just a will to do something, okay, to make choices. This idea of the power of contrary choice means that we can make a choice contrary to our nature. That's important. The reason is this. Adam and Eve were sinless, but they could choose to sin. They could make a choice contrary to their nature, who they were. Christians can also make a choice contrary to our nature, can't we? What's our true nature? 
we have been born again. We are told that we are new creations in Christ. Our salvation and our redemption, as well as our glorification, are spoken of in the past tense. We are new creations in Christ. But can we still sin? Yeah. That's called the power of contrary choice. We are making a decision, a choice, contrary to our true nature. Now, where this doesn't apply is the unsaved world. The unsaved world um, has to act in accordance to their nature. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit within them to help them to act in a righteous manner. Now, they can do good things. That's not what we're talking about here. So, why is this important? It's because in order for God to create us that way, He had to allow us to make bad choices, stupid choices. So one of the reasons why God allows suffering is because it's a requirement in order to create human beings with both volition and the power of contrary choice. If God did not allow us to make decisions contrary to who we are, we would be simply robots, would we not? He'd be up there like a giant puppet master. What God desired from his creation was that we would love him by our own choice. And if that meant not loving him or doing what Adam and Eve did, then that's the way God desired it to be because what he ultimately wanted was not robots, not people that would do exactly what he created them for, but rather that they might love him and honor him and choose to serve and honor him of their own volition and their own choice. And so, God made it possible for us to make a choice contrary to our nature. And Adam and Eve chose to do that, and as a result, sin entered the world. We may not like that, but again, God is a relational being. He didn't want a bunch of puppets and robots. How many of us would be really happy if the only reason their kid loves us is because they absolutely had to? And they didn't have a choice not to. No, you want their, offen- uh, their, you want their, their affection that's genuine and, heart- genuine and heartfelt and it comes right from them. You want them to love you in spite of the fact that maybe you don't always treat them right. Right? God's the same way. So one of the reasons why God allows suffering is because of this idea that He wanted a creation that had its own volition, its own will, and its own real ability to choose, even contrary to its nature, that it might be real and genuine. And so Adam and Eve, they could sin. God didn't take away that option to sin. Unfortunately, they made the wrong choice, right? So that's one reason. He might also allow sin and suffering because it serves as a reminder of the consequences of sin, and it would be used to draw mankind back to himself. This, I think, is key. C.S. Lewis said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, C.S. Lewis was basically saying that God allows suffering because it drives us back to him. It reminds us of sin. I like this idea here. God allows evil and suffering to serve as a reminder of the devastating effects of sin. Think about that. We are reminded every single day by the sin and suffering in the world and by what we face of what happened in the garden. What would have happened if God would have said, I I just won't let Adam suffer in the garden. So when he goes out and he works the ground, I'll take away all consequences of that. What might have happened? Adam clearly would not have comprehended or understood the consequence of what just happened in the garden. It's much like a child who always gets his or her way. What happens to that child? They become spoiled brats, don't they? 
We don't let them get away with that because if we do, if we always allow that, if we always remove any consequence from any action of a child, they grow up to be spoiled, rotten, mean, nasty adults. That's the truth. That's when, when Paul says not to exasperate your children, he's not talking about ticking them off. That's what he's talking about. Allowing them, raising them in a way that makes them grow up to be angry, exasperated, difficult adults. And the way you do that, according to the Old Testament, is let them get away. Withhold the rod. Don't meter out consequences. Don't discipline them. It's exactly what they'll grow up like. And so one of the reasons why God allows sin and sorrow, or allows suffering and evil in the world, is because it serves as a reminder of exactly what happened in the garden and the consequences of that sin. And what's the ultimate consequence of that sin? Eternity. So sin and suffering, God has left in the world to remind us of, if you keep this up, if you keep in those ways, where are you going to end up? You will pay the ultimate penalty for the sin and the corruption. And so having this, I'll call it temporary reminder of the garden, drives us to think about the consequence and what happened. And hopefully then drives us to a place of repentance. Look at what happened after September 11. Anybody remember that? All of a sudden you get this mini revival. In the face of evil and sin and suffering, oftentimes people think about God. And they're sort of driven back to church. It doesn't last very long. Does it make sense now why God may allow sin and suffering? It's one of the things that are necessary to remind us that something's broken, this wickedness exists, and it drives us back to Him. That's the second reason. The third reason, I think, has to do with this. Um, There's actually value in suffering, especially for believers. I'll just read down through these for the sake of time. According to 1 Peter chapter 4, suffering proves our faith. Ever think about that? When you face a difficult time and you stand up and you rely on faith, it proves that faith or tests that faith, makes it more sure. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, says that suffering causes us to mature. Remember James says, Consider it all joy when encountering various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work. And then he goes on and says that it ultimately results in our perfection. And so another reason God allows us to suffer here is because there's value in it. It causes us to mature in our faith. Without the difficulty, we wouldn't be matured. Think about an athlete. My kids swim. Some of your kids do other things. Why do they practice? Makes them stronger. Gives them endurance. You know, Kimberly's only been able to kick for, for what, a month and a half now? Two months. Two months. Okay. Boy, that's going to be tough, the first race, when she hasn't been using her arms for... Two months, right? Just not... Well, practice makes perfect and it builds endurance. Same thing with faith. According to Philippians chapter 3, suffering deepens our relationship with Christ. When we suffer along with Christ, it deepens our relationship with Him. You know, it's funny. You talk to guys that have been um, serving together in the military. They're out in the field. They're, they're living in the, in the foxholes. You know, it's funny, I don't have relationships with most of the guys and girls I graduated high school with and very few of the ones I went to college with. But you can talk to guys that, you know, some of the World War II vets that are still alive, that still have relationships with the guys that they only knew for a couple of years in the foxholes. Why is that? Boy, that suffering together does something. And it does the same with us. When we suffer along with Christ, it helps to build and strengthen that relationship with Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that suffering helps us to encourage others who suffer. 
We know what it's like when somebody else suffers. Somebody who's gone through cancer knows what it's like when somebody else goes through cancer. Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that suffering prepares us for our future glorification. Just a couple others I'll mention here. Suffering teaches us that God's grace is sufficient. Remember Paul had this thorn in the flesh? 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul says, Okay, I got this thorn in the flesh. I really don't like it. So I went to God on a couple of occasions, three to be exact, and I said, okay, God, I want you to take this thorn away. And God said, nope. Went to him again, God said, nope. Went to him a third time, and God said, nope. And Paul went, oh, I get it. God's grace is sufficient for me. So suffering reminds us of God's grace. I think about the Walkers, or about the the Wittens right now, and Walker's family. You want to talk about having to rely on God's grace at a time like this? How important do you think that is? Now, does this mean they... Didn't rely on His grace before? No, but this is an opportunity now where one thing we know for sure is that this will, in their lives, help them understand grace. It does all of us. Suffering teaches us to rely on God, not ourselves. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. That suffering teaches us not to rely on ourselves. When you get to the point where you nothing you can do to relieve the suffering and the wickedness and all you can do is cry out to God. I think about David. You know, there's um, Psalm 3 and 4 where David is crying out to God because I mean, this is a great military man and yet he gets to the point where there is nothing he can do and he has to cry out to God. Why? Because all he can do is rely on God. And so suffering teaches us to rely on God and not just rely on ourselves. Think about the Apostle Paul and all he went through. I mean, the guy was shipwrecked three times. You know, he's beaten and he's bruised. A couple of times he was brought right to the brink, the brink, the brink of death. You know, he spent time in these crummy, disgusting, Disgusting dungeons. Paul got to the play, nothing he could do. He simply had to rely on God for every single thing. Where his next meal was coming from. Putting clothes on his back. One of his last letters he wrote to Timothy, sitting in a cold dungeon, chilled. Doesn't even have a cloak. So he's got to ask Timothy to bring him a cloak. Had to rely on God. The last thing I'll mention here when it comes to the value of this is... um, it produces, according to Romans chapter 5, it produces character and hope in our lives. So there's a number of values, if you will, to suffering. And so one of the reasons why God allows suffering is that there's actually value in it for us. We don't like to think of it that way, but there is. When life is difficult, when we suffer, there's value in it. Now again, that doesn't mean that God's up there going, okay, you need a dose of this. But he allows it to happen. He doesn't protect us from it. He doesn't intervene and say, well, you know what, that's just, well, I can't allow that. Instead, he says, you know what, I'm going to allow it because this will draw them closer to me. It will build perseverance and character and hope in their lives. It will strengthen them. It will help them to rely on me. It will tell them that my grace is sufficient. I'm going to allow all those things because there's value in those things. And there's value not just for the saved, but even the unsaved because it drives them back to him. One final reason I'll mention here And this is probably the most difficult. One final reason to consider is that sometimes God allows suffering because it's His will and it glorifies Him. And that's the only reason. It's a little hard. Sometimes God allows suffering simply because it's His will and because it glorifies Him. Job cried out to God in chapter 10 and said, Show me why you contend with me. And you know what? God never answered him. Didn't tell him why. Just said, it's about me. 
Remember the blind man that Jesus healed in John 9? We read this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? In other words, is he blind because of his own sin? And Jesus basically said, it's neither that or the man's sin, nor his parents. But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know why this man was blind? He was blind solely for the purpose that God was going to heal him through Jesus Christ and glorify himself. It might not sound fair to us, but this man suffered because God would use it to glorify himself. Now the world is going to have a problem with that. I can tell you that right now. The world's going to say, that's brutal, that's mean, that's not a very God love. But you know what? He's God. We understand that as Christians. Consider what Peter suffered. John chapter 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, this is Jesus talking to Peter, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. He's prophesying Peter's death. Crucifixion, upside down. Now he said, signifying what type of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So what he had basically done was he told Peter, Peter, time's going to come where you are going to suffer. And you know what? It's to glorify God. I think that's probably the hardest thing for us. Is when we look at our suffering and we say, wow. Why? Maybe it's our own sin. Maybe it's a consequence of living in a fallen world. But the thing we have to do is we also have to come to the point of saying, you know what? Maybe this is to glorify God. Maybe God wants to show how He works. Maybe He wants to see the world that He is gracious and can deal with this. And again, that's tough for us. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in His name. That's from 1 Peter chapter 4. I love the fact that when we watch the Wittens, almost every single email is a reflection on God and His character. Is it not? How many of you are encouraged by those? God is glorifying Himself with what's happening there. If that's all this is, it's okay. God is glorifying Himself Now again, the world is going to have a problem with that. But that's okay. Last thing I want to just mention here is that God is not indifferent to our suffering. I think it's important to mention here. Remember, God saw our suffering, saw the end result, and what did He do? He sent Jesus Christ. And that involved suffering Himself, did it not? He suffered, the Son suffered, Christ went to the cross, we're told that He understands our suffering. He's experienced temptation and and all the limits of humanity himself. God knows what we struggle with. And we are told that he is there. Again, Psalm chapter 3 and 4, David cries out and he says, God hears him. So, it isn't that God is up there as a cosmic killjoy loving to punish us. He allows the sin and suffering because there's value in it, there's purpose in it. Not only is he glorified, but it draws us near to him. So the question then is, how do we respond to this? I'll leave these up to you. In your notes, you'll see there's some responses there. Somebody says, why does God? Why did God create evil and suffering? And you have an answer for that. And it wasn't God. It's ultimately a result of the sin and 
mankind, and you see a response there. If God is so loving, why doesn't he stop all the suffering in the world? Shouldn't God do something about it? You have answers that you can go through with that. So I'd encourage you to walk through some of these role-playing things. Even if you don't do it with your parents at home, do it in your own mind. You know, I have kids that talk out loud, have conversations among themselves. I do sometimes when I'm all alone too, they just don't know it. But have some conversations about that.